0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching.
1: Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that truly there is none like you. You are unsurpassed in any respect. And um, Lord, it is an arrogant person who would not submit and humble their heart before you because you are the almighty God and you show yourself true consistently. And um, Lord, we pray that as we approach your word, that we would approach your word with teachable hearts, that Lord, we would approach your word, Lord, with a, a willingness to hear what you have to say and not just to hear and be hearers of the word only, but be doers also. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, help us as we um, seek to reason with you, and as we seek to commune with you, and ultimately as we seek to be like you. Um, bless our time in your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm just going to try and set my time up so we're not here all day. And some of you say, really? (laughs) (laughs) The only kind of timer that's going to work is one that gives us an electric shock when we go over time, right? (laughs) Well, here we go. So, 1 Timothy 2, and um, this week we're looking at verses 8 to 15. So, read with me if you will. And... um, I'm reading from the ESV. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. With self-control. So Paul is bringing order in a place where there is disorder. And there's disorder because false teachers have come in and disrupted the consistency of the gospel amongst the saints there in Ephesus. And so they've introduced, if you like, foreign bodies into the the, the consistency of the gospel, um, which is having a, a corrosive effect. And so with that false teaching that has been introduced, has come bad practices, which logically and naturally follows. And so in the previous verses, Paul has began to address the household in practical terms. And he said in verses 1 to 7, Basically, in summary, that God's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, that people from all nations, people from all cultures and all backgrounds are to be able to come into God's house and commune with him, which is what prayer represents. And so we see in first verse 1, first of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now, in verse 8, we see the apostle returning to the issue of prayer. Returning to the issue of prayer because there was an issue to return to. We see from verse 8 that the apostle begins to set out what is right behavior contrasted against what is wrong behavior? What is a right attitude contrasted against what is a wrong attitude? And so he says in verse 8, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands, contrasted by, you see, without anger or quarreling. In verse 9, likewise, and then he addresses some issues toward women. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with, the pivot point, braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And so, again, we see a corrective um, momentum from, from the Apostle Paul as he addresses the church there. Now, can you imagine a scenario where men are going to have to be addressed with regards to the way in which they come before God in prayer? Because they're coming with anger and quarreling. You see, Paul's not going to raise the issue if the issue wasn't present. You imagine. I mean, this... this, this this adds a whole new dimension to the phrase warfare prayer that some of us may be familiar with. Some of us are familiar with warfare prayer because we're used to, you know, going and making war in the heavenlies when we we get into prayer. And there is no doubt that prayer does um, express an aspect of the Christian warfare. Ephesians 6. We see after the Apostle Paul outlining all of the aspects of Christian armor that he says, pray. And so it is part of the believer's arsenal. But the problem here was that the guys were using it against one another rather, against, rather than against the true enemy. It could be that in view of the false teaching that was circulating, there was beef over doctrine. Doctrine. And so when they came together to pray, you had maybe some guys that were just not even able to pray properly because they were so angry, as it says. Maybe they just had an argument. And so they stood there with clenched teeth and clenched fists, barely able to pray. Maybe some were even engaging in The act of releasing prayer bombshells on one another. Sending for one another in prayer. So Lord, I pray for my brother and his funny doctrines. Pray that you'd set him straight. The reply comes. "Mm, Lord, I pray that they would see the revelation knowledge that you have imparted to your servants. And so it could even be that they were actively engaging in praying against one another. That sounds crazy, right? They say that you grow closer to the one that you pray to, the ones you pray for, and the ones you pray with. That weren't happening here. They weren't getting any closer to God because it wasn't pleasing to him. And it was an issue that needed to be addressed. Now, it's interesting because we can kind of consider, wow, that sounds a bit comical even. And yet, how many times have we been in a situation where, you know, maybe it hasn't been anger, but prayer has been used wrongly. Well, we've been in circles when, you know, what we've we've lifted up, or someone has lifted up a prayer, and in this prayer they've they've you know made this prayer request known, and in this, in this prayer request they've just gossiped out a person's entire business, exposing it unnecessarily for all to know. Oh Lord, I just pray for my sister Susanna. And that that unrighteous relationship that she's in. And and everyone's like this. (laughs) Person's got their eyes closed going in. In prayer. Prayer is not something that's to be abused. As it can be. It is something that is supposed to be the most honest and transparent form of communion with God. God. And it's supposed to be an environment in which everyone is supposed to feel safe. Everyone's supposed to be able to feel at ease as we come before God in prayer. I think that there's a definite um, concern with the way in which the men of Ephesus that Paul's addressing here are dealing with their issues. Because what they're obviously not doing is dealing with their issues in the way that Jesus had commanded. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, look, if you have something against someone, go to them. Speak to them. If they won't hear you, take two or three witnesses and go to them. If they won't hear, then bring it before the church. And so we see that there is a righteous course by which correction is supposed to be administered. There is a, a, there's a policy, a biblical policy as to how we're supposed to deal with our issues with one another. I get very saddened these days when I see that people take to dealing with their issues via Twitter and Facebook. As if this doesn't apply like scripture applies to my life apart from my social network. It's unrighteous, it's ungodly, and it's unhealthy. People sending for one another via tweets. And we, and we, and we cannot, for those of us who kind of delve in that realm, you, you, you recognize that it's a reality. But it's not right. You see, the Bible applies to all aspects of our lives consistently. And just because they didn't have Twitter in those days and they didn't have Facebook or whatever, it doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to that. If we have issues with someone, go to them directly, I wouldn't even suggest you try and direct message them with 140 characters. How far are you really going to get in terms of sharing your heart and explaining yourself? Okay, so credit's kind of low and you don't have no texts, inbox them, Facebook. But deal with things considerately, deal with things personally rather than putting it out for all the world to see what a spectacle Christians are. Remember the context. Paul's just talked about the missional heart of God, the house of God being a place of prayer for people of all nations. It's for people of all nations. There's a very outward-looking missional sentiment right there. And in light of that... He says, I desire then, in light of that, behave yourself properly. So often as Christians, we carry on as if our lives are all about us. I was encouraged yesterday when Phil's brother, I think his name's Earl, um, ministered at the wedding. And he, 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 he made this statement, he said that your marriage is not for yourselves. It's not for yourselves, but there are others who are going to be impacted by your lives and testimony. Remember that. And so many times we live as Christians as if our lives are for us and about us only. And that our our behavior has no influence or impact upon anyone else. Don't get it twisted. People are watching you, even when you don't think they are. People going on your Facebook page, going on your Twitter timeline, they ain't even following you. They're not even your friend. But they're going on there. Yeah, ready to want to know your business. You've all done it. But the reality is that even our life online testifies of who we are and what we're about sometimes more accurately than what we present in person and the face that we put on. Whilst I'm on the issue, let me just deal with this notion of being real. If I hear that phrase one more time, I will smash something. Just being real, just keeping it 100 Listen, what I want to know is if you're really a Christian. Because if you're being real, that's what I'm supposed to see. The reality is that so many times, this excuse for I'm being real, I'm just keeping it real, is just an opportunity for the flesh. And we're just left with a presentation of this stinking corpse that should have been buried. The Bible says that we are dead in Christ. And our lives are no longer our own. Furthermore, it says it is no longer us that lives, but Christ that lives in us. So if you're being real, I'm really hoping to see Jesus. Otherwise, you're not being real, you're being fake. You're being a fake Christian. Because you play the game of being a Christian, but when it's time to expose how you really feel, that's when the carnal man comes out and it shows that that's where you're really at. So maybe you're doing us a favor by being real and helping us to know where you're really at as a Christian, where your maturity really lies. The Bible says that those who are in Christ Jesus are a new creation. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. And so, if we're gonna be real, let's be real, innit? Let's be real Christians. Amen? Amen. It says in the scriptures, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach, patient in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Second Timothy 2, 24. And so, even when we have concerns, when we have conflicts, even when we have issues that arise where there's going to be disagreement, because there's going to be those issues. Anger and quarreling is not the order of the day. If we're feeling that way, then you know what? Let's bring it before the Lord before we bring it before anyone else. That the Lord might deal with our own sinful hearts, which he's allowed the situation to expose. Verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So the men were being antagonistic in one way, and likewise, we are told at the beginning of verse 9, so were the ladies. And yet in this respect, in this situation, we see that it was the nonverbal communication of the way in which they were dressing. Now, we spoke at length during the series Female Vocals, which is available online, and it's also available via CD. We spoke at length with regards to the culture of the day and the way in which ladies who were over-ostentatious who overdressed, were communicating sexual forwardness or promiscuousness. And so we might look at it today in the sense of certain people would look at a woman and the way she's dressed and, and well, is she, is she a working girl? Is she a prostitute? I mean, she looks just a bit too available. And in the same manner, they had similar codes with regards to understanding the way people dressed and what it communicated. And so, Paul's saying, look, ladies, you're coming into the house of prayer. You're coming into the the, the house of prayer for all people. Consider your appearance. Is it appropriate... For that, for that person who is named a Christian. Is it suitable? Because these women were not dressing suitably. And it was either they were communicating a sense of decadence and, and a lack of submission. Or they were trying to be suggestive and make their availability known. Either way, it wasn't appropriate. We recognize that there was an underlying attitude of pride and self-gratification when Paul says, with modesty and self-control. You see, so often we we, we live as Christians like, well, nobody can't tell me anything. I'm an adult. I'm a big person. And so if I want to dress this way, no one can't tell me. Not even my husband. And this was the attitude that they were displaying. They again were being antagonistic, whether it was in a sexually provocative way or in a a way that suggested defiance to submission. It was all about them. So Paul says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. And he's not saying that braided hair is wrong. So ladies are all going to take your weave back to the shops. Not necessary. He's not saying that gold or pearls or costly attire are wrong. What was wrong was the lack of moderation. What was wrong was the way in which Within their cultural code, they were so readily willing to communicate a lack of sexual morals. So he says, verse 10, But with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. You see a godly woman appreciates and understands that, you know what, sexual immorality is a sin. That women have power. That men are visually stimulated by what they see. And that it is very easy for a woman to be provocative and be suggestive and so the godly woman says I'm aware of these things and I am gonna dress not just with consideration for myself and what I think looks good but also what I think is gonna be appropriate and not a stumbling block to my brothers you see some would say well that's their problem that's their issue and you're right But Romans 14 tells us that we're to bear with the weaker brethren. That we're to live in consideration for the weaker brethren. And so if there are brothers who genuinely are weak in that area and struggling in that area, if you come and make it harder for them, God will charge you. Bad enough out here for brothers trying to keep our heads straight as we go through life. Posters, TV, magazines, I mean, just getting on the tube at rush hour. Bruv. And so the house of God's supposed to be a place of order and a haven where we're able to come and focus on the Lord without distraction. And that it's not supposed to be all superficial, because you notice, Paul says, with good works. So it's not just about, okay, um, I'll play the game, and I'll keep up appearances. But actually, there's supposed to be substance that accompanies godly style. There's supposed to be godly character that accompanies godly style. And so, it's with good works. Paul then goes on to say, in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And these verses, verses 11 to 15, have been verses that have been a cause of much contention in the church throughout the years and continue to be so. It's a hotly debated topic. And very often it's debated with great emotion, which, if we're honest, gets in the way of us dealing with the text. And so, may we not fall foul of allowing our emotions to rule us as we seek to understand and appreciate what the text is actually saying and what God's order is to us.
0: Now, notice here.
1: Paul says, let a woman learn quietly, in verse 11, and in that... At the end of verse 12, he says, she is to remain quiet. He says, let a woman learn quietly. And then at the end of verse 12, he repeats the same phrase, quiet. It's a very important phrase because some over the years have taken that to mean silence. A woman like children is to be seen and not heard at all. And I know there are some brothers that would like to say amen to that. Hmm. But it is not so. Because the, the word is not communicating the sense of actually being silent as in non-vocal or non-verbal. It's actually communicating the sense of being calm. Not being antagonistic. Not being provocative. And one of the reasons we know this is because Paul uses the verse. In the early, uses the word, sorry. In verse 2. In verse 2 he says, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. that we may lead a peaceful and quiet... There's our word again. So is he saying that we should walk around like monks in silence? No. But that life would be calm and uncomplicated, without contention. And it is suggested that one of the, the fruits of the false teaching that was being promoted was that women were being, being um, stirred up to agitate and to domineer and that the influence may have come from the, the environment in Ephesus where they had a huge temple to Diana, the goddess of the earth. Diana was also known as Artemis. And Artemis, or Diana, was regarded as the the goddess who brought forth the world. Artemis was given to have priestesses who would administer the, the, the doctrines and the teachings and the life, and also themselves, by way of temple prostitution. And so this may have been the influence that these Ephesians had come out of and these false teachers were circulating to now result in these ladies wanting to take authority and take control and to agitate meetings in a way that wasn't appropriate. And so let a woman learn calmly, with all submissiveness. And this phrase all submissiveness communicates not submissiveness to all people, although in Ephesians five twenty two we are told to submit to one another, but it's talking about all degrees of submissiveness that relate to each individual. So, within the context of the church, there is going to be submissiveness to the truth of God's word, first and foremost. All of us, including elders, leaders, everyone alike, are submitted to the apostles' doctrine. It rules over us, we do not rule it. There is also submissiveness to the elders. And we see that as Paul begins to deal with the issue of order in chapter three, the very next next thing he moves on to, as he leaves this statement here, is the issue of elders. Who they are to be and what they're to be like. And so we see contextually that Paul is dealing with the church community there, He's put in order where there's disorder and drawing attention on this occasion for where those ladies have come out of order and become unsubmissive. Some of them may have been unsubmissive to their husbands. So in Ephesians 5, remember, Ephesians 5, Timothy was in Ephesus And the Ephesians were aware of this letter. It was for them as much as it was for him. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the headship of the husband in the marital union. And so, a woman ought to learn calmly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet or calm. Now again, this is something that we spoke at about um, relatively, uh, uh, relative length as we went through the female vocals. And in that series, one of the things that I had endeavored to do was to try and faithfully pour out my heart with regards to what the word says about the equality that men and women enjoy. Because one of the first things that is raised as an objection when people hear these verses is, so you're saying that men are better than women. That's not what's being said at all. And that is not said anywhere in the scriptures. And as we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, which I'd ask you to turn there, we see that the Apostle Paul dealing with the same issue makes it very clear that he is not saying that men are better than women. Because we all know that's not true. (laughs) Some of you probably waited for me to say women are better than men, right? No. So, Looking at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 11. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now you might think, Ephraim, if you're trying to prove that Paul ain't saying men are better than women, then you ain't doing a very good job. Let's read on. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. And so we see that Paul clarifies, you know what, verses 11 and 12, men and women are interdependent as equal members of the body of Christ. And he goes on in the very next chapter to clarify that we're one body of many members. And can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you, or the foot say to the ear, I don't need you? And so therefore, we appreciate and understand that Paul's point is not that men are better than women or that women are better than men, but actually that men and women are different and have different roles according to God's order of creation. So verse 8, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. He takes it back to creation and he speaks of God's order. So God made Adam, and from Adam, he made Eve. So Adam was first, and
0: Eve came from Adam.
1: God made Adam and Eve, (laughs) not Tom and John. As Phil's dad reminded us very carefully yesterday. <laughs> Boy. But there was an order there, and this is what is being communicated. Ultimately, it says that the woman is the glory of the man, but the man is the glory of God. And some of you will remember when we done the um, community group and we looked at the picture of the moon being reflected by the water. And we kind of considered well, you've got this moon and you have the water re- showing a reflection and you see the light. You see the moon has light. You see the reflection emitting light. And it looks wonderful. But the moon has no light of its own. The moon's a dead rock. It takes its light from the sun and it reflects it. And as the moon reflects the light onto the water, the water has no light of its own. But it reflects the light of the sun as it comes from the moon. And so neither of them have any claim to fame. Water starts rippling. Yeah, yes. Whew, I got light. Rock starts, the moon starts rolling. Whoa, got light. I got glory. No, the glory of the man is from God. And the glory of the woman is from God via man in the context of the marital relationship. So no one has any cause to boast. Amen? Amen. And so it is with this sentiment in mind that we see that the Apostle Paul is communicating to us in our text. Now, before we leave First Corinthians 11, I want you to just flip back to verse 3. Because in verse 3, he gives a deeper illustration for the relationship. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so he talks about the issue of headship. He talks about it in regards to the fact that Christ is the head of every man, that the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that last phrase defines that whole statement. We understand that whole statement by that last phrase. The head of Christ is God. But hold on a second God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are they not equal? Are they not one? So how is it it can suggest that the head of Christ is God? You see, even within the Godhead, there is a a functional order that is enjoyed with complete harmony. And this sentiment is further communicated in 1 Corinthians 15. If you'd like to just flip over there. So in 1 Corinthians 15, jumping in at verse 24, and I'm jumping into a thought. You can read the context more fully for yourself from verse 20. But jumping in at verse 24, then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Christ, Um, I'm inserting the brackets, must reign until he, Christ, has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, Christ, feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So God put the things in subjection under Christ, but he didn't put himself in subjection under Christ. That's basically what it's saying. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. So let me read that again, insert in the brackets to help us when all things are subjected to him, Christ, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, Christ, that God may be all in all. And so, without wanting to take time to unpack all of the theological mystery of this text, it communicates to us that there is a Functional subordination that exists within the Godhead. And it is such that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are equal, who are one, equal in substance and power, yet they have different roles where they harmoniously relate to one another. And this is the picture, and this is the illustration, and this is the example, and this is the order in which we, as a church, and husbands and wives, relate to one another. It is a a relationship of equals.
0: And yet, recognizing that we're different.
1: And so, here, Paul in First Timothy 2.12, if you'd like to turn back there, saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man is curbing, countering the, the, the false teaching and the false behavior, maybe the in- influence of the cult of Diana, and set in order in a context where disorder has arisen. The phrase teach or to exercise authority is a a compound phrase. And so it's not saying that women cannot teach. In fact, we see later, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul communicating the fact that women are to teach. We also see that in Titus chapter 2, Paul communicates the fact that women are to teach other women and brings clarification. So in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. Now, in many translations, it says faithful men. But the word that's used there for men is a generic term in the Greek, which is most commonly used for people. And so there is a sense in which Timothy is to equip women to teach. And I feel that there is a distinct lack of that that goes on. Because generally, in circles where they hold what's called the complementarian view, where women are not authority figures, they're not elders, they're not pastors in the church, that that means they ought not to have any grasp of scripture or any um, instruction as so as to be able to instruct others. And I think it's Unbalanced. And so, in 2 Timothy and in Titus, we do see that women are to teach. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that women are able to prophesy and are encouraged to do so appropriately. So the issue isn't merely women not teaching, but it's the authoritative teaching of the Word in the role of a pastor or elder, in a way that is fully comprehensive over the whole congregation, including men. Now, he goes on to say in verse 13, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. When Paul makes this statement in verse 12, he doesn't relate to cultural issues. He doesn't say, well, you know, in the cult of Diana, um, priestesses run the show, and that's not really how we do it as Christians um, in Ephesus because of this. He doesn't appeal to the culture or to the surroundings of the time. He takes it back to the garden. And actually we see the same strategy and the same um, method of, of dealing with the issue in 1 Corinthians 11. So we looked at the verses. For man was formed first, and woman from man. So he goes back and appeals to God's order of creation. He says in verse 13, Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the order that God instituted. He goes on in verse 14 to say, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, is he suggesting that women are more gullible? No, I wouldn't say that he is. we see that the Apostle Paul is stating the facts of the matter as to what took place. And I am absolutely convinced that the Apostle Paul is on one hand, in view of the the situation that he's in, balancing the equation with regards to the issue of sin
0: and its introduction to the world. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse
1: 21 and 22. And this is just going to be one example. There are a multitude of other texts like this. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all what? all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we see repeatedly in the scriptures and from the apostle Paul himself, him highlight the fact that because of Adam, sin came into the world. Because of Adam, all die. But on this occasion in 1 Timothy 2, he's acknowledging and recognizing the woman's participation on that occasion. Women are just as bad as men. For some of you ladies, that's going to be a revelation hard to deal with. Women are just as bad as men because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So who's better if we're all tainted and corrupted by sin? In need of a savior. In need of God's spirit to sanctify us and enable us. And yet, Paul is making it clear in 1 Timothy 2 that Eve was deceived. That was the nature of of her participation. And so appealing back to the garden and it's a statement that he repeats in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3 but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, he highlights the fact that Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. But Eve was genuinely deceived. And so in view of that
0: spiritual principle,
1: Paul is saying that he doesn't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. He goes on in verse 15 to communicate something that is actually, like, really quite mind-boggling. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So is Paul saying that by having children, women will go to heaven? Live how you want, it don't matter. Just make sure you have kids, ladies. From you have kids, you go into heaven, it's all good. Somehow it doesn't sound right. And it's evidently not what he's saying. One of the things that it seems Paul is communicating is this the person who is saved will continue to progress and be benefited by the saving work of Christ as they submit to it. So I'll come back to the childbearing bit. If they continue in faith. So obviously he's speaking about ladies who are already walking in the faith. If they continue in faith, not giving themselves to these false teachings and these heresies and these false doctrines, but continue in faith and love, not contention and antagonism and holiness with self-control, it's going to be a benefit to their lives. One of the things that Paul communicates in the book of Romans Is a sense in which we as Christians are saved, are being saved, and will be saved ultimately. The fact that we have been justified through faith in Christ and forgiven of our sins. We are now in right standing with God. We are no longer recipients of the wrath of God because Christ took the wrath that was deserved for us upon himself. And so we are saved from that wrath. And we are in right standing with God. And yet, as we progress daily through this Christian life, we are being changed and sanctified. We're being constantly worked on by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. And so we are being saved. We are being preserved because God, as Paul says in Philippians 1, is faithful to finish the work that he started in your life. And yet, we will ultimately see the completion of our salvation when we are glorified. And there's no more work to be done in the practical. We receive our glorified bodies and we are, as Christ is, entirely. And so that continuation will see the fulfillment of that. Now... As part of that experience, it is regarded that women may be looked at in a way that is, um, they may be looked down on. Oh, so you're saying that Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. God, that Eve. Well we recognize, if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, that there was a response that was made to that. There was a response that was made to that incident that helps to clarify to us
0: why Paul may be addressing the issue of childbearing.
1: So in verse 16, God said, in judgment of the woman, Genesis chapter 3, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Hmm, interesting. There's that phrase, childbearing. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for who? your husband, and he shall, what? Rule over you. And so we see God pronounce a judgment which is outworked in the life of women. And whether or not a woman's husband rules over her may be one thing or another, but the fact that she has pain in childbearing is a universal truth. What, can I get a witness? And so we see the Lord pronounce a judgment. And it's one that ultimately ought not to be resisted, but submitted to. So do your Lamar's classes? Breathe well. And so as we're in First Timothy 2:15 and closing out the chapter, yet she will be saved through childbearing there is a sense in which her reputation and any stigma attached to the responsibility, the co-culpability the that Eve had will be graciously reconsidered when recognizing a woman who receives and takes on the the judgment that the Lord has executed willingly. And in receiving that and outworking what God has said, taking the pain of childbearing and being submissive, continuing in faith and love and holiness with self-control, it will be a benefit to her life, not just in terms of how she's benefited, but also in terms of how others view her.
0: No stigma. No disrespect
1: required. We all have to bear our burdens. And the admonition is to do so graciously in the fear of the Lord. There are other views as to what that may mean. Some say it speaks of Mary and the fact that she bore the child. And... The original language doesn't really allow for that, but it's an interesting consideration. So childbearing is the bearing of the child Christ who came as the Savior of the world. And yet, Paul doesn't mention Mary. He's speaking to the ladies in Ephesus. It's a difficult text, and you can look it up further should you wish to. It's not speaking of eternal salvation as in forgiveness of sin, but it's the outworking of salvation being fulfilled unto completion. And so, from the text, we appreciate and understand that God has order in his house. He has established an order, an order that was established from creation In creation, we see human history start with the first family. And that became a picture or an illustration of God's household, the church as a family. And we see that it is unique to these two contexts that the issue of
0: male headship is presented.
1: Now, above all things, the overarching issue of these verses from 8 to 15 is don't be antagonistic toward one another, but be submitted to God. The emphasis of the text, and not my emphasis today, has been on ladies. And obviously, he was addressing the issue in a more thorough sense. I think that in society today, there's a whole lot of man bashing that goes on. And so it may feel uncomfortable hearing so much of a message given toward women. I didn't write it. I'm the messenger. And yet still, the admonition is to one and all. Not to be antagonistic, self-infatuated, wanting our opinion and our view and our voice heard, our way succumbed to and followed. But ultimately, it's following Christ as Lord in submission to him with behavior that testifies faithfully of his work in our lives. so let 's pray and i 'd ask if we 'd stand and um, if the team would come back in our community groups, we will explore this further this week, and i 'll have opportunity to give some of the um, other views that are held by Christians who study scripture, love God and disagree that this text actually speaks of the fact that women ought not to lead in the context of the church because there are such views held by such wonderful people of God. And so we'll have more opportunity to explore it further then. But for now, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your unbiased faithfulness, Lord. When we look at the whole context of your word, we appreciate that we're all sinners in need of a savior. And um, part of the evidence of that, Lord, has been our willingness to be rebellious and to desire our own way, even without consideration for others. And yet, Lord, we see that it's not about us, it's about you. We see that it's not about our way, it's about your way. Because your way is right. And so, Lord, we just give you thanks and praise. Because, Lord, you are faithful. And so help us, Lord, we pray. Have your way among us. Shape our lives, Lord. For some of us, this is challenging. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to wrestle and reason with you, recognizing who we're wrestling with. You've said in your word, come, let us reason together. You, the great God Almighty, God of the universe, invite us to come and reason. And so we thank you, Lord, And pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our hearts in you as we find peace and calm contentment in your will to the glory of Christ our Saviour. Amen.
0: To find out more about us,